Hey folks, audio editor Weston Williams here. Before we start this episode, just a note from all of us that we are just as troubled as you by the news of hardships at Opera Philadelphia, the shuttering of the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and the passing of the great Renata Scotto. All stories which broke after our regular recording day, wouldn't you know it? But for now, please enjoy this lighter podcast from slightly happier times. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's Talk Radio Show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. Okay, in this episode, the Women's World Cup is down to its final four teams, and we are here to pick a winner based on a head-to-head between each country's greatest singer. Mm. And then... We go inside the huddle with baritone Hugh Montague Rendall, starring in the current production of Pelias et Melisande at Santa Fe Opera, which closes this week. Plus, two-minute drill. Which conductor would you like to see with nothing on but his uh, baton? Make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Spotify, click follow, Apple Podcasts, hit that plus sign. Send us a voice memo or even just email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get the OBS Beer Coaster and the OBS Lapel Pin just for sharing your own hot take right now. You're going to get Oliver Camacho. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Good. That's quality content right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I just like, I don't know if we we're going to talk about something sporty. Um, my well, sports... the U.S. Open is right around the corner. Uh, in about yeah. three weeks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're, <laughs> we're in the height of the uh Hardcore season, and uh, we had a surprising winner this past uh, weekend in uh, Toronto. Um, Yannick Sinner, the young Italian, uh, who uh, Yannick yeah, Yannick Desai Sagan, surprise, <laughs> exactly, exactly, parallels, parallels in opera all the time. So, Weston Williams, I feel like Yannick Desai Sagan. I have no proof of this, but he seems like a tennis guy. You know Too what short. I mean? Too short. They're all six foot minimum. Really? Yeah. Really? Some of them are like six, yeah. six, six, seven. It's crazy. So. See, see, the problem is, is like, you know, once you once you get down, you know, e- even like below six, five, you're all mm. the same height to me. <laughs> Weston, you should play tennis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I should. Well, while you're playing tennis, I'm going to be recounting the blasty blast that I had at the Bears Opening preseason no. game at Soldier Field no. this weekend. No. Where at Soldier they, Field, uh, not in Arlington Heights. So. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Yeah. We decided we should go, considering this might be one of the last seasons they are, in fact, at Soldier Field. Uh, and we got to see them beat the Titans, which was awesome. Got to see Justin Fields actually throw some winning plays out on the field this go-round, which was delightful. And Is that a burn? It was eh, mild. Um, but listen, <laughs> we're still in the era of guarded optimism. We've won our first game. That's as far as we can go with our optimism right now. But one of the greatest things about it was they had um, on the field at halftime, they had two youth uh, football games going on at both, nice. at, like at each end of the of the football field. And one of them was like a CPS rec league. And then the other one was an all-female flag football league. So it was Simeon versus uh, uh, Whitney Young High School. It was awesome. It was so much fun. So cool. The Associated Press preseason college football polls are out. Michigan at number two, Alabama at number four, and Arkansas answer came there none. They got some (laughs) votes, just not enough to make the 25. 
<laughs> Let's talk some opera. TKO on the OBS. At this point, you're used to us doing these brackets for these important tournaments. And we just want to cut right down to the chase. There are four teams left in the Women's World Cup uh, representing uh, Spain and Sweden in the semifinals and England and Australia. Um, so we decided, since this is a very um, woman's sport, I mean, duh, that sounds really strange that I said that that way, but you know what I meant. Uh, we're going to pick the best <laughs> so female ladies. singers. <laughs> the best female singers. The best female singers. There um, you go. From, from those countries. So in the first semifinal, we have Spain versus Sweden. I posit that uh, in recent years, uh, in the recent generations, the, the the most famous and probably remaining, will remain one of the most important singers from Spain is soprano Montserrat Caballé. Mm. Uh, she was a versatile artist who could easily do lyric roles like Mimi and Liu. Uh, she was a bel canto queen. She was part of the big Donizetti revival. And there are stories of her, you know, going into the recording booth and you hear the score being cracked open for the first time. She was like sight reading all of those operas Jeez. that she recorded, Jeez. but she was a consummate musician. Uh, she had the, um, technique to really do bel canto music justice, but she also was able to do dramatic roles, uh, like Aida. And Norma, uh, and she actually, I think, could stand toe to toe with some of the best Normas and Aidas that are around. She's so got a pretty she, decent recording of Zalame too, which is kind of wild. Yes, such, such a comprehensive artist, and I think she is uh, what they would call a soprana assoluta uh, for being able to master those, you know, different corners of the repertoire and bring her unique technique to all of those roles. So I posit Montserrat Caballé to represent Spain. Let's I, talk I would about, agree with that. Let's talk about Sweden. Uh, I'm going to pass this one off to you, Weston. What do you think? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I, do have, I, I do have a <laughs> bit of a personal bias here. I, I, I think Birgit Nielsen might be my favorite singer of all time. Uh, I uh, Genuinely, which should come as no surprise given the repertoire she hangs out in. Uh, but like, man, what a what an incredibly powerful voice. I, I mean, it's so astounding to me because she lived through like the golden age of studio opera recordings, you know, 60s, 70s. Um, and we have a lot of really, really great recordings of her. But the consensus from people who have uh, heard her live and heard her in recordings is that the recordings don't capture just how powerful her voice actually was, which is insane to me because her voice is incredibly powerful. Yeah. Birgit Nielsen is the one you call on when you want a full Wagnerian Straussian orchestra to be able to like flex its muscles, but still hear the singer, you know? Absolutely. And Absolutely. and that's what's so exciting about hearing her recordings, you know? Like, and yet she also did Italian roles like she Aida did. and Tosca. Yeah. Um, oh, okay, so Ashley, uh, I'll start with George. George, what are the skills, the athletic skills that make for good football? Well, and this is where I'm going to tip my hand here, is that for me, the, the game of soccer, <gasps> European football, <gasps> yikes, <laughs> faux pas there. Canceled. It's, it's not, to me, it's not a power game. It is a game of 
lyricism, style, finesse. The Brazilians call it the beautiful game for a reason. It's not about brute strength. It's about being light on your feet, being creative, imaginative, thinking fast, and having having style over brute strength. So Ashley, where do you see the parallels there in uh, an opera artistry? Yeah, you know, I mean, I feel like another thing that I want to dovetail on with with George is that I agree that it's not a brute strength sport. It's a sport with a lot of stamina. You cannot you cannot go in a lot of quick bursts and have that be your game. You have to have stamina. You have to be able to keep up for the entire duration. Uh, and so when we're looking at sort of what are the positions within football that are most akin to these two folks? We look at Cabier and she's, you know, she's got the lightness. She's got the delicacy. She She's not the brute strength that we might find in like a Nielsen for her insane recording well, that let's we're just put it out there nobody can compete with nielsen in strength like <laughs> that's in this, that's true. That's in this true. probably in all of opera maybe lisa davidson is the only singer who, so who could compete with her so birgit nielsen is more like the goalie really it's that solid yeah. wall she's holding it down she is she has her own literal wall of sound and defense on the on the back part of the pitch whereas Kavi is a little bit more of a striker she's a she's gonna have some show-stopping moments she's gonna give you a couple of moments that are gonna catch your breath but it's more about those individual moments and the finesse that she brings to those as opposed to just brute force of a Kavier or sorry a Nilsson goalie well speaking of uh those special moments that uh, artists bring to the table, uh, here is Montserrat Caballé's uh, best trick that she is known for, and she tries to do wherever she can, even if it's not appropriate to the repertoire. <laughs> she'll figure out a way to pull off this trick right here. From a live performance, uh, a concert performance uh, of the aria for Liu Signore Ascolta, uh, Montserrat Caballé showing her incredible breath, breath control and floated pianissimi. And this one ending with a crescendo, which she doesn't always do, but um, that is something. And as you can see, the audience gets very excited about that. Uh, who picked the clip for Birgit Nielsen? Um, I did. Uh, <laughs> speaking of stamina, speaking of longevity, uh, this is a this is her singing uh, Isolde from Tristan with Leinsdorf at the Met in 1974 when she was how old? 55. Jeez. And still Listen, a full 10 years from retirement. I might it is cuckoo banana crackers. Talk about stamina. Talk about longevity.
phrase like a laser, you know, is always what people used to describe Jürgen Nielsen's voice, just like, you know, the intensity of the beam, the focus, the complete awareness of what she is capable of doing at all times, um, you know, and the dramatic capacity as well is there. Um, it is hard to be, you know, dramatically coherent when a lot of people are just hanging on, you know, with, to, with, by the skin of their teeth just to make a sound, <laughs> you know, in some of this repertoire. Um, but she is there. She is present. Um, and, you know, she always said the secret to a good uh, Isolde is to wear a pair of comfortable shoes. So my question is, how comfortable <laughs> are those cleats um, out there on uh, the uh, World Cup stage? So we have to decide who's going to take this round. Uh, is it the versatility and technical, uh, you know, uh, various technical abilities, varied technical abilities of Montserrat Caballé in various repertoire? Also a singer who had a long career, um, I think probably equally as long as Bigger Nielsen's, if not longer. I should have researched that. Um, or is it going to be, as you guys call her, the, the goalie? You know, the, I don't want to <laughs> say that Birgit Nielsen is just one trick pony. She's clearly not. She is a beautiful artist, and I'm a huge, huge fan. But every time I think of Birgit Nielsen, I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be power, you know? Listen, if this was a boxing match, I, I, I think that um, Nielsen would absolutely take it. It's not. It's the beautiful game, and that goes to <laughs> Caballé. Who who's the ref here? Herbert von Karajan? <laughs> no, I think we have to come to to a consensus here between the four of us. So, what do we think? I, I mean, I think I'm going to go with Kabaye as well. I mean, Weston and I are both deep Birgit stands, so I think it's going to be it's going to be challenging for one of us to to come over so that we can like a jury get Does out. This of one here go to penalty kicks. <laughs> <laughs> possibly, possibly. We're not at the end of the game yet, so no. Um, I do feel. Uh, I I'm reluctant, but I will I will go with Spain. I will go with Montserrat. Yeah, I mean, as much as I love Birgit, and I do love Birgit Nielsen. You know, like I said, favorite singer perhaps of all time. I do think that Caballé's range is has to be considered in terms of like types of roles she's capable of doing. Um, and uh, you know, as much as it hurts me, I do think we have to give round one to to Spain. <laughs> Round two uh, is a matchup between uh, England and one of the colonies, right? Yeah. The clash in the Commonwealth. Yeah. Um, so we have um, England versus Australia. And it's hard to pick the greatest singer from England because they, they're they all known for, you know, intellectualism and, um, you know, refinement um, there isn't, I mean, maybe Bryn, Bryn Terfel, Terfel, who's Welsh, you know, could be described as like a powerhouse, like a jock, you know. But when you think about what is prized in English singing, it is really erudition and uh, style. And none better than Dame Janet Baker, who was a stylist and, uh, you know, who is prized for interpretations of orchestral song of Mahler and Berlioz and Leader. 
Her operatic roles are mostly 18th century, Orfeo, uh, Diana and Callisto, uh, Didon and Berlioz's Les Troyens, Dido and Purcell's Dido and Aeneas, uh, some Mozart roles like Dorabella and, um, did I say Orfeo already? Um, I think if we're going to try to find uh, a role that she sang that shows off her prowess, it would have to be a surprise role that she took on in her career, that of the soprano role of Vitellia in uh, La Clemenza di Tito, which is no easy sing. This is a very vocally demanding role. Um, why don't, before we hear who we're going to have represent Australia, let's hear a little bit of Janet Baker's singing. Remember, she is not known for this type of dramatic singing, but here's a little coloratura and a fancy high C. From the studio recording of La Clemenza di Tito, uh, conducted by uh, Colin Davis, uh, the first aria for Vitalia. The other role that you didn't mention, Oliver, for Dame Janet Baker was the role of Lucretia in Britain's Rape of Lucretia, mm-hmm. which I think is important because if you don't have good diction, Britain's work does not work. Mm. And she brought that, you know, to that world premiere. In a way, she's kind of like the sweeper on a soccer team. It's kind of in the in the <laughs> midfield, mopping things up. It's a little bit of this. It's a little bit of that. It's it's very evenly spread in terms of one's abilities. Well, she is a highly detailed singer. I don't know if sweepers are highly detailed, but uh, I do look for Janet Baker for nuance and for, you know, love of language and beautiful phrasing. Ashley, you were about, I felt it was coming out. It was so close to coming out. I was out. like, and going back to the sports metaphor, but George <laughs> beat me to the punch. But to to just sort of dovetail on that once again, you know, the sweepers are, they, they cover gaps when defense is breached. They are less concerned with like man marking. They're reading games from the deep. So they're kind of, they're a little bit more in the back trying to figure out where the errors are. And I think when we see sort of the breadth of the repertoire and where she sort of inserted herself where needed, yes, the sweeper analogy works for me. Well, we know that Aussies love their sports. It's really a sports country. (laughs) And who is the bigger jock than Joan Sutherland? (laughs) That is how I describe her on a daily basis. Joan the jaw Sutherland. That chin alone could crack walnuts. 
I mean, oh, this is beautiful. a bell, a bell canto powerhouse. Yes, she mm. sang other repertoire, but she will be known forever for her uh, exploration of all of the bel canto heroines, large and small, known and unknown. Norma uh, Semiramide, uh, Lucia de Lamamore. Uh, it's a lengthy list of, uh, and then she also was part of the Mass and A revival, which didn't really happen, but she tried, <laughs> <laughs> did her best. I, I feel like Joan Sutherland is just one of those voices that you can't, that uh, when she sings, she, she defines, redefines the role for herself. You know, like uh, uh, she is not a typical coloratura voice, you know, really at all. She's got. She has power rivaling, you know, the, the dramatic sopranos of like. Well, she could have been a Wagnerian. I mean, she she, she, she could started have been. out as a Wagnerian, actually. You so. know, uh, uh, I I don't think she could have been as pure a Wagnerian as say like a Birgit Nielsen. But I'm you know I'm just a little bit annoyed at the last round. So, <laughs> uh, but I I think that there is there is something so distinct about her. She is she can be every uh, everywhere. You know, she she has this incredible range and ability to make make the plays her own. I I, I really grew up in a pro Sutherland house, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um which is, you know, not to not to brag or anything. Uh but I, I feel like people who complain about uh Sutherland are always nitpicking. You know, they're always talking about like, you know, oh the diction wasn't very good. Or like, you know, like, oh, the, te- the technique is ahistorical somewhat, you know, like, oh, come on, like, come on, you know, like once you sit down and actually listen to her sing that you cannot go up against uh, Sutherland. She is that good. She just is. It, it is some of the most exciting singing you'll hear yeah. on record. And just to imagine what it sounded like in the house, yeah. they said that her voice was huge. And when she launched those high E flats and those high E's, like it like you felt it between your eyes, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, let's actually have one of those high E's. Oh, George, you're about to say. Oh, well, some other time I'll have to tell you the story of when I appeared on stage. Oh, get your drink ready, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) We'll save that for another episode. (laughs) Let's let's hear her and one of her signature roles. This is the uh, Kabaletta from Semiramide. That coming from the studio recording conducted by her husband, Richard Bonning. So we have uh, a stylist, a sweeper, uh, somebody who does 18th century opera and was part of the Baroque revival, who sings Britain, who sings Mahler Leader, and who sings Schubert, you know, better than probably anybody in this lineup of four, versus uh, the six foot tall, she was like 5'10", but you know, Compared to Marilyn Horn, she looked like she was seven feet You're tall. You're all the same height to me, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Who sang, you know, uh, Torundot, who sang Norma, who sang Semiramide, who sang Lucia, 
who, you know, just did these major, major diva roles um, and sang them thrillingly uh, and could launch a high E like the one we just heard and like blow your socks off. Mm -hmm. I think when it comes right down to it, as much as I love Janet Baker, it's it's almost like a different sport is going on, right? Because, you know, Joan Sutherland, you know, she has opera in the bag. That's what she's known for. When I think of of Janet Baker, I think leader. I you think sea pictures, right? <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> I I just don't think of opera. It's almost like it's almost like she's playing American football while yeah. everyone else we mentioned is playing mm-hmm. uh, football, football. Yeah. Um, and uh, I I have to give it to Sutherland. I would agree too. I hope that fans, when you're listening to this, England women's team has actually beaten Australia. But in this matchup, I don't see how it could go any other way other than having Sutherland win. Well, to round out our sports metaphor, I am going to label Sutherland as our winger because wingers are often the widest attacking players. They are often the fastest players on the field. And if you've heard any of her caller tour, you know just how fast she can be. I'm going to go Sutherland. Okay, so this is what we're predicting. It will be the final. Uh, Montserrat Caballé representing Spain and Joan Sutherland representing Australia. Uh, before we started recording this podcast, we did not have a chance to talk about what we actually think the outcome would be of this matchup. I mean, let's maybe just bring it to the sports. Does anybody know here how these teams are doing, Spain and Australia? I know that Sweden beat the U.S., uh, so one would have guessed that that would take them to the final, but... Um, they sort of won by like what a millimeter or something like that. I heard there was some like penalty kick that like dribbled back or something. I don't remember exactly the story, but uh, it wasn't like a decisive win for Sweden. It was sort of like an accidental win. It went to penalty clicks. Don't don't get me started on on sort of why that game ended the way it did. If the women's teams of Spain and Australia were playing, it would be difficult to bet against Australia. Spain would certainly be the underdog in that women's World Cup matchup. I, I think that's where that doesn't really help us too much because I feel like the Caballier versus Sutherland was actually kind of a rivalry that happened. You know, <laughs> I, that's like, you know, that's the one reason I'm not like too concerned about Birgit getting kicked out because like I do think this matchup is genuinely kind of an exciting one. Like I, I if I, I wouldn't know who would win in this matchup. They, they have, they both have a lot of power. They both have a lot of range. They both have um, a lot of uh, uh, personality in terms of their singing style. Cowboy maybe less so in terms of acting. Um, but I don't think either of them are going to win prizes for acting. True, true, honest. true. Fair. Um, okay, well, let, let's take it just vocally. So Joan Sutherland, clearly, if we're talking about upper register, if we're talking about top notes, clearly Joan Sutherland wins. If we're right. talking about actual tessitura, like top to bottom, I think Caballé actually has a very interesting chess voice and she mm-hmm, deploys mm-hmm, it in mm-hmm. a very exciting way. Um, she also is more likely to sing art songs. She's more likely to sing like middle voice stuff. And she sang, um, what role did we were talking about just now? Salome. She also yeah. sang, <laughs> yeah. she sang, you know, Lucrezia Borgia wrote these roles are a little bit more in the middle of the voice, whereas opposed to Joan Southern sort of is best when she can show off the top. Um, I feel, I feel like, uh, 
like I said, Joan Sutherland's ability to make each role her own might actually be a weakness here uh, because I feel like as distinctive as Caballé is, the fact that she tried so many different things and is so convinced, like her Salome is pretty convincing, you know, which is not not something you would ever associate with her, which I don't think I could say the same for Sutherland in that respect. I mean, we see Caballé not only singing Strauss and uh, Sarsuela and, you know, um, Bel Canto, you know, she also does Verismo. And I don't think you mm-hmm. would put necessarily Joan Sutherland's type of voice in Verismo, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so Caballé is the ultimate, like, absolute soprano with the ability to do just many, many different things. Um, Joan Sutherland, I feel, is happiest in that repertoire of nineteenth-century bel canto. It's so difficult this this matchup for me. It it goes to penalty kicks, which is essentially the intangibles. Now I I have to think about. <laughs> You should just speak up, Ashley. If you feel like he's going to steal your thunder, you should speak up. Are you in my brain? That is exactly what I was going to say. Was it really, Ashley? I was. I was like, this is coming down to penalty kicks. Please keep going. You're you're brilliant. Like me. Well, Continue. I, we are both brilliant. But think about it, right? Like, it's so difficult to make this call in voices alone. So now I'm starting to think about directors from these countries, the opera houses. No, 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 no. We're not talking, no, not talking about on. that. Hang on. Hear me out, though. And even then, <laughs> you're, you're thinking... Sydney Opera House versus Teatro Real Madrid. You're thinking Baz Luhrmann versus Calixto Bieto. You're thinking of operas set in Spain, um, whether they're Sarsuela, whether it's opera set in Seville versus, you know, productions set in Australia, of which I can think of none. <laughs> it, I, I don't know how to decide this, so I'm going to cede my time to Well, Ashley. if that's the penalty kick round, then Spain, you just handed it to Spain, basically. I, I by a nose. I mean, by a single shot. Yeah, which is essentially I, a f- coin flip. Yeah, it's true. If you're putting a striker up against a winger on penalty kicks, it could go either way, but it's probably going to go to the striker, which means point Cavier. I, I, I think that that seems to be the consensus. I, 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 uh, I wouldn't expect to vote against both my love, Birgit, and Joan uh, in the same episode, but here I am. I think it's going to Cavier. Okay, folks, you heard it here. If you are betting on the World Cup final, which is, I guess, August 20th. Uh, I mean, Australia's still going to win it, Aust- but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's between Spain and uh, Australia. Uh, just, you know, uh, take, a, t- take a note from uh, Opera Box Score and put your money on Spain and uh, you'll be surprised. I think you'll, you'll come out on top. Is that what they say in, in, in soccer? You come out on top? No, there must be some better <laughs> believe, right? That's Ted Lasso, but yes. <laughs> huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So we bring you more content from Santa Fe Opera. And this time, this the other star of their current production of Pelias A. Melisande, the extremely handsome... And I embarrassed myself throughout this entire interview swooning over this guy, <laughs> Hugh Montague Rendell, 
uh, whose bio is very easy to find, um, uh, whose parents are uh, British mezzo-soprano Diana Montague and tenor David Rendell. So he grew up in an operatic family. Here's a little bit of Hugh singing Pelias et Melisan, the um, eating the hair aria <laughs> uh, from a production in 2021 at Opera du Rouen. a little bit of a performance of Pelias et Melisande featuring our guest today on Opera Box Score, Hugh Montague Rendell. That performance from the uh, Opera de Rouen in Normandy. Welcome to OBS. Thank you. So I just saw you in um, Santa Fe doing this same show. And um, man, I didn't know that I was going to want to talk to you like when I uh, got my when I got the season overview. And the PR department was like, okay, who do you want to talk to this year? I was like, Rolanda Biazone, yes. Susan Graham, yes, you know. And I, your name popped up. I was like, hmm, very handsome, but like, I don't know what I would talk to him about. So I, you know, I was like, hmm, pass, you know. And then, of course, I saw you and it, not that we have to like rank, you know, productions at a festival, but the production that stayed with me the most uh, after seeing all five shows was Pelias. Uh, it was just so emotional and so um, effective and uh, disturbing. <laughs> That's all, yeah. all ticks of Pelias, I guess. Yeah, but a lot of it has to do with with you and um, just how, uh, I guess, I mean, emo is like too easy a way of describing it. But, um, you know, you're very vulnerable. Uh, you're very sensitive. And when you finally sort of get out of your haze uh, in the first couple of scenes, you really begin to see like your youth and your your ardor coming back into your body. And um, yeah, it's a real a real arc that you draw with this character, both you know vocally, which is a given, but also just physically. And um, I, I just really felt like. I identified with this person that was on stage, you know, like it was very, very sensitive, you know? Yeah. Well, I think the character is so personable with a lot of us who have been through trauma, loss, love, first love, I think in Peleas's mm -hmm. way. Um, but the family is kind of oppressive and they are a little bit messed up in their dynamic. 
I mean, you start off as Peleas that your your best friend has sent you a letter saying that you're, he's going to die. And you can go and see him if you want to, but you don't have any time to, to lose. And then your grandfather says, no, you have to stay here. I'm sorry. Um, and that that's gonna, if you really think about what that would be like <laughs> to go through, it's terrible. It's horrible. And then he probably, I, I love playing with the torment of that kind of guilt that he'll have when he's falling in love with Melisande and he sees Melisande, but also thinking that his friend is somewhere dying on, on their deathbed. So mm -hmm. this con contrast of, of, of opposing emotions in this character are all the way through the piece. And I, I relate with that massively. Hmm. I spoke to Samantha Hankey, who plays Melisande uh, when yeah. I was at Santa Fe. And she said that, you know, they had started rehearsals without you. I guess you were coming from a different engagement. I was, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it, I always feel guilty to do that. Um, but it was an unfortunate conflict in, in schedule. But they were very nice to allow me to come come late. And we had the amazing Luke who jumped in for for Orfeo as well at the opening night. He was, he was um, singing in for me at the beginning. And he was doing an amazing job. So I owe him two or three beers, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well... Samantha said that, you know, when you arrived uh, to the rehearsals that you just brought this different level. And I mean, clearly you've sang the role because we just heard you did a production two years ago, but uh, that you just changed like the energy and you just made it more, you know, intense and more comprehensive. And maybe that's what the theme is of this interview that's going to be of this interview is that you seem like at your tender age of what, 29 or something? Or, yeah, that you are already an artist. And people who listen to my content know that I rarely accuse people of being artists. <laughs> <laughs> I love it's an accusation though. That's marvelous. I'm an accused yeah. artist. <laughs> yeah, but no, but that, that you are looking at things from you know a comprehensive approach you know, the physical approach, the vocal approach, the language, the detail, uh, the phrasing. Um, and, you know, I'm happy when I get 75% of that in the performance, you know. But uh, now with the limited experience I have with hearing you perform, uh, I understand what type of performer you are. You are, you mean to be an artist. You mean to be um, a stylist and sensitive and, um, you know, you maybe changing your your vocal color or changing your physical approach with every character you you take on so that it's a different person and it's not like you could get lost like where's Hugh's where's Hugh in that you know um and that, that's actually kind of funny because we're gonna talk about I, I actually heard you sing Papageno a couple of years ago and I didn't clock you at all but that's not your fault but no. <laughs> anyway, I, I guess I'm giving you a compliment right now but I don't know if there's something there you can grasp to grasp on yeah I think about you know we have, as artists, if, if you consider yourself a singing artist, an acting artist, a singer-actor, uh, 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 whatever you want, we have a responsibility and a duty to make the people who are in the audience feel something profound. Otherwise, it's not about us. It's about a shared experience of, of an emotional journey that we have all been through. And I think if you can get to the inner core, this little aura of your character and kind of merge it with yourself or find yourself within the characters, with each character you portray, 
you can do that and it's not possible really to do that without finding yourself in in these you know <laughs> confused troubled people that well i like to play anyway um whether it is from papageno to hamlet for example they all they share a very similar fundamental hum human truth that it is what it what it is to be human and that is who knows <laughs> who knows but i i mean uh, and with the language things i think it's very important to be understood even so if we're, if we're singing peleas in the in the desert in santa fe i will work on my french as if i'm singing it in the middle of paris or something for example um because we should be understood well what I guess I said in a kind of roundabout way is that, you know, you're 29 and you have a, you clearly have a great instrument and you are, um, you know, your stage present is very, uh, stage presence is very uh, easy for the audience to accept. Uh, and uh, that in a lot of cases can be enough for somebody to get their foot in the door and like have a career, but somehow you're 29 and you're already doing things that I don't, that I, I'm surprised to here and maybe can i suggest that you had a leg up uh because it as it turns out both of your parents are opera singers and rather famous ones at that yeah quite <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah i i suppose i had a leg up in the in the way that i saw from my childhood the best of the best i was traveling with my parents or or, or when we were home to some of the most incredible inspirational theaters when they were working with some of the greatest conductors of all time if i work on on what well, the certain repertoire with my parents which i which i have done since i started singing uh they are channeling people that they worked with like leonard bernstein carrion baron Boim, all of these amazing people and and i've been lucky enough to to take that from birth and or from when I started understanding, <laughs> which I'm not sure I, I will ever, but you know, uh, maybe that is a leg up. I don't know. For me, it was just always normal to talk about these things with my parents. So, do you are there any disadvantages to having had two parents who have been in the career and, uh, you know, working singers? And, you know, like for me, for example, like I had my both my parents, neither of them even knew what the heck I was talking about when I said I'm going to go to school and like study music you know and yeah. so I didn't get that guidance like oh you should do this program or you should study with this teacher or you should definitely not go to that school you know um but there's I don't know if there's any downside to having two people who really really know the business not at all not at all I mean the business now is completely different than the business my parents were in when they started 45 50 years ago I mean sorry uh, five years ago my parents aren't that old. <laughs> No, but uh, it's a different it's a different business now, and it's a business, and we are we have to be different people. We have to be, work differently as artists in order to get ourselves seen. Uh, but downsides, uh, no, maybe just <laughs> if I wanted to sing around the house when I was a student, uh, it would always be criticised with, "Oh, you're doing that wrong. Uh, you, you'll get yourself into bad habits," or or whatever. Yeah, but otherwise. It's only uh, it's only marvelous because I can talk to my parents about I still do it. They came out to Santa Fe to see me here, and we could talk for hours and hours and hours about the intricacies of I don't know one 
page of Mozart recit. Well, I'm glad you brought up Mozart because uh, as I hinted at before, you actually came to Chicago and you made your lyric opera debut in the Barry Kosky Magic Flute. And I remember look, really looking forward to hearing Ying Fang sing Pamina because I adore her. Um, but Everyone knows Ying Fang. She is yeah. the best. That's why. <laughs> she's, she's exquisite. Um, but that production, as it turns out, uh, seems to rob opportunities uh, to really uh, flesh out the character, for lack of a better word. Um, it's a different approach, for sure. Um, it's it's. A... You have a contract to do it like next week. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no, no. But I mean, it, it it has its place, and it it's not it's not for everyone. Um, but and and to do to do this show, and it's such a huge theater like uh, like the Lyric, it is it was extremely difficult because we we do we had to interact with all the with all of the. Um, um with what are they called projections there we go um and that is is difficult to do anyway but because the theater is so big you may lose some of the small facial details that we would do on stage mm -hmm. but we were so far away so when it was created at the commercial opera in berlin it's a much smaller house and you can see the small details on the faces and maybe that changes the way that it would be received i'm not sure hmm. I, I, I see what you're putting down there. Okay. Um, so Mozart has played a pretty big role in your career to date, which naturally so, because you're still a young guy. Um, so you've sung Papageno, you've sung Guglielmo, and you've sung The Count. Uh, I know you did at least an excerpt of uh, Don Giovanni. Uh, I don't know if you've gotten around to working on the whole role yet. Have you? I'm doing my first Giovanni next season, yeah. Oh, nice, nice. So... I don't know. Mozart seems like a good topic to stay on for a little bit because each of these guys is obviously so different. Um, I think I've said before on my show that the count is a dream role for me um, because of just how much he gets to do on stage and how many different, you know, colors you get from him and moods you get from him. Um, do you have a favorite amongst those four? Well, the count is is just an absolute dream, and it was always my dream role as well. And I've I've, I've done him once. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna sing him again now in in Munich, and it, I'm so I'm revisiting my score and going back into the detail of the recits, and 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 it's 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 just incredible the way that this is written, as you uh, rightly as you say, with all the different colors, all the different faces you can put on as the count. Um, you have to be really open emotionally because you don't want them to be affected they have to come out i mean apart from in the moments when they need to be affected but they they still if you have for example when the chorus come in and you say what the hell is going on here yeah. um and then you speak to them um and you say oh my wonderful friends you still have this burning anger inside that there are these, these people in the room of the house of the woman that you've been trying to seduce since day one and and they're all there and they're getting in the way and everyone is everyone is so it's layer upon layer upon layer of emotion and it's so well written that it just kind of can can come out yeah and maybe they smell, you know, it's like maybe these are people who like don't have the same grooming habits as like the people of the, like the court, you know, Quite. and, uh, you know, 
maybe some of them like work in the fields and they're tracking in hay. <laughs> yeah, I, put, well, I did. A, I did a wonderful production. Uh, my first one was was this wonderful production by James Gray. I did it in Nancy. Um, they did it first at the Théâtre de Champs Élysées, and uh, and we did the revival. And the scene after this scene, when they're all leaving, they're singing Giovanni, blah 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 blah. Uh, they're coming up and trying to shake the Count's hand. And he has it out and they're taking it and he's pulling it away and, and <laughs> tried to incorporate this little, I had a little handkerchief with me. So when they left, I was wiping my hands with all of them and I didn't want anything to do with them. And that's <laughs> some of the fun little things you can do. And there's scope to do it in these, in these, uh, in these shows, cause it, it, it can just fall out of the character. And I was so lucky because when I was studying to, to do my debut as, as in this role, I went and worked with Sir Thomas Allen. Um, for a session. Oh, you've heard of him. <laughs> oh, yeah, just this guy. And yeah. it was just amazing. The, the the insights he gave me and the the his depth of, of I mean, he's the greatest count, one of the greatest counts anyway. And to be able to work with him on this was terrifying <laughs> and enlightening as well. We'd sp we spoke about the, the count having a certain amount of this this almost feminine quality hmm. which makes him a, in in the, if you do it in a period production makes him just makes him a little bit more distant from figaro for example because if you're just all all butch and and going out with all guns blazing um it can just be <laughs> oh it can be a long evening <laughs> so i've seen your peleos and i guess i saw your papageno but uh, you know, your Pelias to me, like there's this sadness in your character that is like apparent, like from the moment you walk on stage. And uh, I don't know, like if you know where you get the ability to have these uh, emotions just at your at your access. And I'm just imagining what you have to do to prepare to sing the count to be this real jerk and who you know brutalizes his wife and tries to sexually assault his wife's chambermaid and then accuses his wife at in the end of the show of like trying to shame her in front of the entire court you know on a really wonderful day on the day of of his valet's wedding you know like this guy what a, what a but i mean what what comes from from the underneath of basically any of these horrible characters the giovanni might be the same um is one and underneath Peleas is a lot of pain and underneath the count is a lot of insecurity he's scared that he's gonna he's gonna have his entire world taken away there's the the uh the the revolution is taking taking place he's scared that he's gonna lose everything so he is feeling like he needs to hold on to his power but underneath it he's he's scared he's a frightened little boy Peleas is a is a scared sad little boy me, I'm a scared, sad <laughs> little boy. We all are. We underneath all of our bravado, underneath all of our feeling, we are these little pockets of of emotion. And yes, I'm going to say the most cliche thing, but as artists, we wear them on our sleeve. We have access to them, um, which in real life can be very hard because we are emotional people. But it means we can kind of tap into them sometimes not sometimes if you're having a bad day and and you you 
don't really want to touch them, touch the surface of these emotions, then that can be kind of difficult. Or sometimes you're feeling sad, like, for example, in Pelea, sometimes I have to really think hard about going on to the stage and thinking I'm going to, I've got to be, this is going to be painful. Tonight's going to be painful. And sometimes I just go on stage and I'm like, oh God, and it just pours out and it's, and it's easy. Um, but it's funny because the, the day after I sing Peleas, I'm always depressed for the whole day. And I feel awful. I'll come off stage on a massive high because I've, I've finished the show. It's great. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the most difficult things to sing. And if I can get it, all the notes relatively in the right order. And if they all come out, you know, <laughs> sounding all right, I can come off stage and be like, I did it. I'm proud of that. And that was fine. Um, but then the next day, I don't know, after a sleep or something, and my, my body is exhausted. My mind is so tired because you've been through a real journey. So maybe it has to do with, I forget like what the science is of like, uh, you know, this person wrote this book, the body knows the score. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, maybe your physical performance as Peleos is really accurate for a person who would be going through some of these things. And maybe the way you have to, you know, contort yourself into being that guy, your body thinks you're that guy for those three hours that you're on stage. Like, oh, I guess this is our experience right now. And you have to like, you know, remind yourself, no, that was, that was acting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, or sometimes in rehearsals, I found, I, I got into this more with, as I was going back into Peleas again, I need to be really upright to sing the role because it's it's hard it's high you have lots of g sharps you have a two a's in the piece and you have to sing like a tenor really everything just goes a little higher so my body needs to be open but with the text you want to fold yourself in half and and just not like just protect yourself you feel like this little going to almost like a fetal position um so i find myself when i I'm not thinking about the singing. I don't feel like I'm, I'm really like acting. I don't feel like I'm, I'm trying to portray any physical shape. These are the shapes that I would naturally pull if I was in this situation. And, and I think that I, I was doing a, a, on a side note, I was doing a Taba Flutter in, in London at the at Covent Garden. And I had the most wonderful, wonderful colleague, Jochen, who was singing Sprecher. And he, I, I went to him in the beginning of the rehearsals and I said, look, if you, I know you've done this role a lot. This is my, this is my full German debut of this role. Um, if you see anything that looks terrible, if you have any, any suggestions, I would be uh, so, so, so delighted to, to hear, have your input. And, and we did, and we worked and, and he said, you, when, when we do all the staging, we, we get into it and we need to remember all the blocking, but when you are on stage in, in the, in the audience, you need to just take yourself in and think how you personally, how you Hugh or how you, anyone would react in this real situation. And it sounds so obvious, but it's so hard to do. And we forget about it because we're like, Oh, I need to, I need to do this. I need to portray this character. If you can feel it, you're portraying it. Well, I think that really sums up what I was asking at the top of this interview. It's like, you are already doing this level of work that I think uh, 
you know, singers that are closer to your age are, they're not ready for that yet. Or they haven't thought about that yet because it really is just exciting, you know, to be on stage and to like be working with uh, Harry Bickett and to be singing at Santa Fe Opera. And you just want to like let everybody hear your voice. And there may be some intendants out there who's like, yes, handsome guy, solid technique, you know, let's, you know, let's give him a shirtless scene, you know, like, and, uh, yeah. And you're, you seems like you're already, you're past that already. Or did you have that stage maybe when you were 23 where you were just oh, taking God. off your shirt? Oh, <laughs> uh, no. Well, I'll do these things if, if, if it's, if it's necessary in the, in the piece, I'm not just, I'm, I'm not, I'm not one of these shirtless guys who will just take it off for every emotion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather I'd rather have like a mad scene and get completely naked than and just like be the buff guy on stage. <laughs> well, let me know when that's happening. So uh, <laughs> Hugh Montague Rendell, I think we're gonna close listening to this. It's not opera, but I just want everybody to hear it. Uh, this fidile that you recorded, it is heaven, and uh, I would love to hear you do all of these songs. Um, but we get fidile, which is my favorite. So. It's a good one. It's a good one. Just a little bit of his brand new recording of Dupark songs recorded with Malcolm Martineau. That was my favorite fidile. Ashley, what else is happening in the world of sports? Well, if you like the movie Blindside, congratulations. It was all a lie. Uh, so in uh, Shelby County, Tennessee, Michael Orr, who is the football player at the center of what was the popular film, The Blindside. Uh, this is going to bum you guys out, and I'm really sorry. It turns out that the Tuies, the people that quote unquote adopted him uh, in both real life and The Blindside, didn't actually adopt them. He signed what he was told were things to forward along the adoption process. But he found out in February of this year, when he was 37 years old, that those papers were actually a conservatorship. So when he was a teenager and was becoming Just like with this- Brittany. Yes, exactly. So they were basically able to make financial decisions on his behalf. So the book that was written, the film that came out, which actually didn't portray his whole story, all of that stuff, the Tuies, the family that brought him in, they benefited from it financially. He didn't make a dime. He didn't make any money until he went into the NFL. So what he is doing is filing a petition to disillusion or sorry, dissolve, excuse me, that conservatorship. But even even now, so what the what the uh, agreement actually said, he thought it was adoption papers. He literally found out in February of this year that what the uh, film option actually did was paid each member of the Tui family, not him, but the parents and the two kids, each $225,000 and then 2.5% of all future royalties oh, for that geez. film. Pulling oh, out the half a percentage point for you know production costs and what have you, that family has made roughly $6 million off of that film and he did not make a dime. 
I'll tell you what, Ashley, uh, I'm really blindsided by by all this news. How dare Terrible. you? Terrible. Weston. <laughs> hey, look, by the way, if you're still reeling from our Women's World Cup rundown, you can let us know who your picks would be. You can send us that voice memo or email us your hot takes, score at gmail.com. Get your voice heard. Right now, we're going to get our voices heard on the two-minute drill. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything that you need to know about what happened in Opperland this week. An investigation into conductor Carlos Kalmar at Cleveland Institute of Music concluded that the allegations against him did not constitute sexual harassment or gender-based discrimination and did not violate Title IX. Dean Southern, CIM's acting Title IX coordinator, said that the report on Kalmar's conduct did not, quote, substantially or unreasonably interfere with participation in educational programs or activities, and that Kalmar's behavior did not discriminate on the basis of sex. Apple Classical has announced a partnership with the Salzburg Festival that includes exclusive audio recordings and playlists for the platform, as well as spatial audio, TM, remastering of recordings from past festivals. The partnership is the latest of many that have been initiated by Apple in its attempt to lure classical listeners to its app. Also in Salzburg, the festival has announced that Han Kyo-yoon is the winner of the 11th Herbert von Karajan Young Conductors Award. Yoon will get 15,000 euros and the opportunity to Mm. conduct a concert with the Radio Symphony Orchestra Vienna. Conductor Lorenzo Viotti has apologized for a nude picture he posted on Instagram. He has over 100,000 followers. Viotti said, I understand people have different values and beliefs, so I decided to remove the post. Sometimes it's better to take a step back. My social media presence revolves around my ultimate passion, classical music. Alongside other cherished aspects of my life, such as family, friends, sports, fashion, and the value of freedom. We live and we learn, and I will never stop learning prayer emoji. Well, I haven't learned yet, so could someone please DM me that pic? Hard-hitting journalism from England's Daily Mail. American tourists eating noisy popcorn at a proms performance caused a, quote, near fight during Poulenc's Dialogues of the Carmelites. The paper's music critic said, I couldn't hear or smell the popcorn. But behind them was a guy who was unbelievably abusive to them. We thought he might pull a knife on the tourists. The American tourists and angry Brit were separated from each other during the interval, according to the venue. More than 100 gold-painted statues of Richard Wagner have been stolen from the grounds of the Bayreuth Festival. The tiny Wagners, which each stand just 19 inches tall, were part of an art installation by Ottmar Hull. Hurl said that he's used to a few pieces going missing from similar installations he's made in the past, but this is the first time that every single piece from one of his works of art seems to have disappeared. Wagnerites really are a special breed. Chicago Opera Theater has canceled their upcoming production of Plate by Rameau before the season even gets underway. The company said, In the midst of preparing for our 50th anniversary season, a series of unforeseen expenses have emerged. COT has made the difficult but fiscally responsible decision to cancel the production. The French Baroque comedy was supposed to have given friend of the show Gary Thorwedo his conducting debut at COT, and we are gutted. Exit stage right. American composer Nancy Vandevate has died at age 92. She founded the League of Women Composers and was based in Austria for many decades, composing the operas All Quiet on the Western Front, Hamlet, Where the Cross is Made, and Chernobyl. 
Swedish dramatic soprano Berit Lindholm has passed away at 88. Lindholm made her debut at the Royal Swedish Opera in 1963 and went on to perform in major houses all over the world. British coloratura soprano Jessica Cash has died at 84. Cash performed throughout the 1960s and 70s at the Glyndebourne Festival and Welsh National Opera and was well known for her interpretation of the Queen of the Night. And on this day, August 14th, first performances include Jean-Joseph Mouret's Les Fêtes ou Le Triomphe d'Italie in Paris in 1714, Joaquina Rossini's Il Turco in Italia in Milan in 1814, Die Valkyrie as part of the first full ring cycle at Bayreuth in 1876, Strauss's Die Liebe der Danai, produced posthumously at the Salzburg Festival in 1952, a staged performance for the first time of Schoenberg's oratorio Die Jakobsleiter, or Jacob's Ladder, at Santa Fe Opera in 1968. And in 1969, on August 14th, it was the first performance of Krzysztof Penderecki's Devils of Loudon uh, at the U.S. That was the U.S. premiere in Santa Fe. In 1892, we uh, celebrate the birth of soprano Emma Luar, who created the role of Sophie Arnaud in the titular opera Sophie Arnaud by Pierre. Also, she created the role of Hibert's Jonathan in his opera Le Roi d'Yves Tho. In 1901, Franz Konvichny, the conductor, was born. Nailed it. Thank you. French baritone Marshall Singer was born in the Pyrenees in, uh, in 1904. Uh, Pierre Schaeffer, a French composer, was born in Nancy in 1910. He developed Musique concrète, which is Weston's favorite genre of music. In uh, 1948, we say happy birthday to American bass baritone John Cheek, born in South Carolina. And on this day, August 14th in 1959, it was the birth of Cecilia Gazdo, Cecilia Gazdia in Verona. I nailed it. And that's your two-minute drill. was a little bit of the uh, uh, opera Orpheus 53, Orphe Trois and Cinq, I don't know, the French. Cinq en Trois. Cinq Trois. Uh, named for the year in which it was composed, 1953. Uh, that was a collaboration between Pierre Schaeffer and Pierre Henri, uh, who are both giants in the early electronic music field, especially musique concrète, which of course is based around the idea that you could pull musical sounds from anything, put it on a piece of tape and uh, put it all together in a, in a stack um, and make music out of it. And that is uh, that is a great opera that it barely exists. <laughs> it's uh, uh, Pierre Boulez actually conducted all the orchestral bits to that. It's part of uh, his general uh, ethos of creating cutting edge new music that was 
very cutting edge at the time. But I actually really genuinely love this piece. I think it's got some real like pathos to it. You don't hear a lot of music concrete operas. I don't think this was the only one, but this is the only one ever, anyone ever talks about. And it's it's just a, a cool little piece, very mid-century, very fun. Um, 10 out of 10. I love it. And what, Weston, is it like your birthday or something? Like This is... Uh, I know. The content I could have gone with I could have gone with the Pender Rescue. I could have done Jakob's Leiter. I love that piece. This is a great day. Who knew? August 14th. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and here I thought that music concrete was the uh sound that cement makes when you knock it. So no. it can be if you record it and put it on tape and play <laughs> it with a bunch of other weird noises. And then there's Carlos Calmar. There sure Ooh, what is. A, what a tonal twist. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we we heard last week from senior legal correspondent Ashley Hargrave, and this week we're going to hear from senior <laughs> higher education correspondent Ashley Hargrave, uh, who uh, who knows a little bit about Title IX. And uh, so here's what's peculiar about all this. So Title IX is it's all about did a student's education get impeded on the basis of a sex or a gender discrimination. It's not about mm-hmm. whether or not behavior was egregious in any other way. It's strictly about gender. Uh, so what this report has concluded is that, no, that didn't really happen. So the thing that's weird about this for me is like, okay, so CIM's Dean, first of all, his name is also Dean, Dean Southern. He has 37 <laughs> titles. He is the Dean of CIM. He's a uh, vice president of, what is it? Uh, I saw, oh yes, vice president of academic and student affairs. And he's also the acting Title IX coordinator. So in my experience with Title IX, that is peculiar. I've seen it be the dean of students. I've seen it be a dean of academic affairs, but I've never seen it be the dean dean. Uh, and so apparently Sadiam thought it was okay for him to be part of this call. I raised my eyebrow just a little bit when I realized that he was both the dean of the School of Music and the Title IX coordinator. Um, usually the findings of Title IX investigations aren't necessarily like made public to people. Uh, But he wrote in a statement to the entire CIM community, in light of the public attention surrounding this case, I have decided to share this update with you. Now, he doesn't get into the allegations, but he basically just says it didn't violate Title IX, but we still take Title IX seriously. So what will be interesting Mm. for me is if any other reporting comes out of this. So if it didn't violate anything in Title IX, did it violate, I don't know, code of conduct for faculty? Who can say? So speaking of conductors, uh, Lorenzo Viotti, who I did not know, but now I'm going to start following. <laughs> Lorenzo Valdetti, <laughs> am I right? Uh, hoping that there will be uh, future uh, thirst traps. <laughs> I mean, let's just say this for real. Like, social media is ultimately it's porn. I mean, it's, it's all types <laughs> of porn. It it's all types of porn, but it's also that type of porn, you know? Um, and. True. You know, one of my favorite hobbies is uh, matching Instagram uh, influencers to their OnlyFans page. So uh, I'm oh just my looking. Lord, I cannot believe. <laughs> Only conductors. Yeah, <laughs> Only conductors. <laughs> so that's the episode. Yikes, of, that's yikes. the episode title for yikes. sure. I would that, pay that's, that's nine ninety nine a month for that. Easy. <laughs> so he's not the first classical music musician uh, to you know, create thirst traps on their Instagram. Look no further than beautiful principal Wait, so did you say thirst trap? Yes. Hell yeah, thirst trap. Oh my trap. God, George, you're so old. <laughs> I literally have never heard those two words put together. 
Oh, yeah. you're so oh, you're mid, Boomer. Okay, okay, okay so Boomer. <laughs> I have heard mid and Boomer. Go on. You, you know, you just made Oliver seem young, so we're really well firing on all cylinders tonight. This has been tonight. lovely, and I'll, I'll sign up. If you now. like this type of content, uh, look up Charlie Seam, violinist. Look up Andreas Altenzamer, principal clarinetist of the. <laughs> He's uh, scrolling Germany. through a Rolodex. <laughs> He's got them all written down. <laughs> even <laughs> Yannick even Nizes again. channel. Yeah, has been known to give us some thirst traps. I mean, I don't know what this picture was, but I heard that it was not really much of anything. He was naked, but he wasn't like completely exposed. No, it was just it's... like some some side cheek or something, you know? Yeah, it's tasty. I, I think it was, uh, I think the title of the deleted post was like pas de deux or something. Yeah. So it implies maybe two buttocks is yeah. my theory. Who knows? As opposed to one buttock? That's weird. If you've seen it, Email Oliver at operaboxgmail.com. <laughs> Working in classical music media that, uh, yes, our audience are Puritans. And uh, I mean, grow up. Really, just grow up. So That's good advice. Just just grow up. Yeah. Just grow up and you won't have to know what social media is. Yeah. Right, George? Exactly. Okay, Weston. So Apple Music's bid for classical music fans' attention. Only fans' attention? I Just tell me what I need to know. <laughs> Oh, no. Only classical. Uh, I I would download that. Uh, uh, I I think that uh, Apple Music is such a strange phenomenon, and they're really swinging for the fences here. Um, This is so. This is uh, this comes right after a story we didn't talk about last week. Uh, It was actually a New Yorker article, kind of decrying uh, Apple Music, Uh, and I feel like this is uh, an interesting sort of inflection point because. Obviously, pretty much every genre of music has switched to streaming at this point, except for the holdouts in the classical music world. Um, I know our listeners are only hearing the audio, but if you uh, if you were here and could see us, you would see that Oliver is surrounded by stacks and stacks of CDs at all times. And this is not limited to only him. Um, I have quite a few CDs still. Um, I really didn't switch to streaming until fairly recently when I had to sort of review Apple Classical for this very podcast. Um, And uh, I think it's really interesting because up until very recently, I don't think there was any real large-scale corporate swing. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think they saw it as profitable, profitable to really try to snatch up every single um, classical fan. But Apple okay. is trying it. And they've, they've partnered with a lot of uh, organizations. They're trying the exclusive content thing, which they've already done a little bit with the Met. You can get some exclusives there and some other uh, organizations like that. Um, and I think this is a smart move if they really want to do this to make this happen. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's the, it's the double edged sword of streaming. Uh, when you have all these exclusive con, uh, contracts, you force people if they want to hear certain things to subscribe. And then just like with Netflix and all and Max, especially all these streaming services for television, you have the potential for, you know, a, a large company to say, ah, this isn't really profitable anymore. I'm just going to delete everything. You no longer have access at all. Uh, and to some extent, this has always been the case. Like, you know, CDs go out of print, so they become hard to find. Um, but it it really does, you know, it really does, you know, when we're talking about a field that is not necessarily 
does not necessarily thrive in a for-profit environment. It makes me nervous when a big company like Apple is really starts swinging for the fences like this because I could wow. see the an, another CEO really messing things up if enough people jump on right now. They've got your dime, that's for sure. You yeah, they've already got my money, so. <laughs> Just like with everything, <laughs> diversity is the key. You have to have multiple ways of accessing yeah. content. You have to have multiple types mm-hmm. of tomatoes planted in the ground, etc. It's like traveling. Yeah. you got to travel, uh, you know, intermodal. That's the way to do it. The Ooh. statues <laughs> stolen from Byright. First of all, <laughs> Can we just? I'll put a picture on the website operaboxcourt.com. Can we just oh God, agree that they, so they kind of look like garden gnomes, <laughs> they which the Germans do. love, and they're not to scale. So like Wagner's hands are as big as his head, and his head is pretty big too. So it's just it's. I mean, you know, they really captured the big headedness. I think of uh, of Wagner, really evocative. This is the funniest story I've ever encountered. I feel like Bayreuth has been just a goldmine recently of like weird petty drama. And there's something so funny to me about these little garden gnome Wagners scattered all over the place. And like, and I will reiterate, like this, this artist does this kind of thing. He specializes in doing a lot of the same piece scattered everywhere to the point where he expects some little yeah, pieces to be stolen. Mm-hmm, sure. But the fact that this is the first time that every single one has been stolen just tickles me so much. I cannot wait to see one of these bad boys pop up on eBay because I'm getting it. You know I'm it'll be it. there. It's But it's like, you know, he did the piece and, and you're thinking, you know, they all got stolen. Otmar, you sound surprised. <laughs> Devil's advocate, was somebody stealing this for kitchen for fun or is it somebody who is like super, super progressive and really doesn't like Wagner? Mm, that's uh, the best part. It no. could be either way. It literally could go either way. It could not go either way. It's the former. <laughs> Uh, we'll wrap up with another crime that happened, and that is the cancellation of Plate. Uh, yes, I will. I will say that it is a very big opera, huge cast, chorus, dancers. To put on a French broke yeah. opera is one of the most luxurious things you can do. So it makes sense that in cost cutting efforts that they would choose that to get the axe. Uh, but ma- yeah. major disappointment for me personally. Yeah. I, At least they still have the nose, so listen, I'm okay. Listen, I know the director this very well. He's a fabulous director. I can guarantee you this Drink. is not going to be one of your rich, Baroque operas. You know, they should have brought in the uh, that amazing production of um, Les Angelantes from Paris with the uh, hip-hop dancers. That was oh, cool. Yeah, that so would have cool. been cheap. <laughs> that was, but that thing was so fresh. <laughs> yeah. Let's wrap the show uh, up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Great to have the whole crew here. We're gonna wrap Minus it up with Matt good Cummings. call. That yeah, well, Matt, you know he yeah, actually. He, yeah. <laughs> Poor Matt. Good call, bad call. We'll start with Oliver Camacho. Friends of the show, Emily Pogoreltz and Chris Reynolds uh, have come out with their second Deutsche Grammophon single, which is available on streaming platforms. It's a song by Andrew Shu. Just look up the name Emily Pogorelts, P-O-G-O-R-E-L-C, in your search engine and enjoy. Weston Williams. Well, I have a potential good call, and that is because I'm I'm seeing the future here. I am I'm I'm putting my fingers to my temples, reaching out into the ether, and I just know 
that at least one of our listeners is someone who stole a little Wagner or knows someone who stole a little Wagner and they can get me one. They can send me one. All you got to do, if you know where one is, just send us a little email, operaboxscourgmail.com. Heck, we'll throw in the little beer cozy, the little pin. I need one of these little Wagners. You got (laughs) to send me one, please. Above your price point, baby. Ashley Hardgrave. I am going to share a little nugget of trivia that I learned today. Uh, If you've ever listened to the seminal hit, uh, All By Myself, written by Eric Carmen, eventually (laughs) re-recorded and covered by both Mariah Carey and the inevitably incomparable Céline Dion, if you've ever heard in the interludes something that sounds a little bit classical, uh, it's because he actually, Eric Carmen, when he was writing this, he was inspired by Rachmaninoff. And he's actually mentioned that before. But it was so incredibly obvious that he was actually required to give credit to Rachmaninoff's estate. So when you look up all by myself, it says in Google, song by Eric Carmen and Sergei Rachmaninoff, which means... That's so funny. That Rachmaninoff's best-selling song ever (laughs) is all by myself. (laughs) That's the best call I've heard all day. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You can find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. And hey, that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are and give back to the OBS on our donate page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho, and your audio editor is Weston Williams. For co-host Ashley Hardgrave with guest Hugh Montague-Randall, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you never stop learning. Prayer emoji. We're back with an all-new show next week, plus you get more opera headlines. More takes and more thirst traps, whatever those are. Join us.